0: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu with prime cuts from across this week's stories. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and on your menu, as part of our Open Future season, we explore the limits of free speech on campus and in stand up comedy. Is there a formula for World Cup glory? And extra, extra, why there's still plenty of life in America's small town newspapers. But first, our cover story. The Saudi Kingdom's law has just changed, allowing women to drive for the first time. So our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton Beddows, got behind the wheel herself there.
1: It's now about five o'clock in the afternoon. It's still about 50 degrees here, so it's incredibly hot. And there aren't actually many people of any sorts on the road, not that many women driving at all. But it is a pretty extraordinary day for the past decades. Saudi Arabia has been the only place in the world where women haven't been allowed to drive and that has epitomized the repression of women in the Saudi Kingdom and the fact that they can now drive is an important symbolic moment it's actually an important real moment for a lot of women in this country who thus far if they had enough money had to rely on hiring a driver or to use Uber so life is really going to change for a lot of women
0: It's the most visible symbol of a social revolution, coming from the palace of the crown
1: prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Cinemas have opened. Music is performed in public. The killjoy morality police are off the streets. Social liberalisation is part of the crown prince's ambition to wean the economy away from oil. Saudi Arabia has plenty of critics in the West, but the whole world should care about its future, we said. It is the biggest oil exporter and home to Islam's two holiest sites. It is central to the Gulf, the Arab region and the Islamic world. A more normal Saudi Arabia should moderate the Islamic world, by example, and because the flow of petrodollars to zealots would slow. Failure, by contrast, could spread turmoil to the Gulf, which broadly avoided the upheaval of the Arab Spring of 2011. Worryingly, the reformer prince has already been reckless abroad. His war against the Houthis, a Shia militia in Yemen, now centred on the battle for the port of Hodeidah, has brought disease and hunger to Yemenis, a missile war over Saudi cities, and embarrassment to Western allies that provide weapons and other help. With its main ally, the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, it has led the way in isolating Qatar, a contrarian emirate, by cutting land, sea and air links. As the Arab Cold War spreads, Iran and other foes are gaining advantage. While at home, he's developed a taste for repression. The number of executions has risen. More dissenters are in jail, among them, perversely, women who campaigned to drive. Everything, it seems, must be a gift from the al-Sauds, the name of the country, the oil bounty, and now the right to drive a car. He has also adopted the view that all Islamists, even the non-violent offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood, are as grave a menace as Sunni jihadists and Shia militias.
0: We argue that Mohammed bin Salman has a fragile golden opportunity
1: as long as reform doesn't stall with the right to drive. The crown prince could turn his popularity among the young and women into a political force. That would help him in what is likely to be a long reign once he becomes king. Right now, he is on the road to becoming another Arab strongman. As the Arab Spring showed, autocracy is brittle. Better to become a new sort of Arab monarch, one who treats his people as citizens, not subjects.
0: And you can read more in our special report on the Gulf in this week's edition of The Economist. It's available online and in all good newsstands. And if you're not yet a subscriber, you can get your first 12 issues for $12 by visiting economist.com slash radio offer. Saudi Arabia's football team faces Egypt today in the World Cup. Here at The Economist, we've been trying to hit on the critical formula for World Cup glory – Apart from enough money and a decent-sized population, politics plays a role too. We wrote that dictatorships are rubbish at football, which requires more creativity and flair. Ah, well, Professor Jürgen Moller at Aarhus University in Denmark wrote in to set us straight.
2: It would be neat if the beautiful game could only thrive in democracies. But this conclusion, which is based on data for the period between 1990 and 2018, is mistaken. Italy won two World Cups during Benito Mussolini's dictatorship in the 1930s, beating an authoritarian Hungary in 1938. Latin American countries such as Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay have had excellent international sides both in democratic periods and when under military dictatorship. Dictatorships are, alas, not necessarily rubbish at football, but the countries that are still dictatorships today are.
0: We'd love to hear from you on any of the stories we cover, so do keep writing to us. You can reach us, radio at economist.com, or on Twitter at Economist Radio. As part of our 175th anniversary Open Future season, the latest episode of The Economist Asks tackled the contentious issue of free speech. Across America, students have been demanding limits to what can be said on campus. One view we heard was from Professor Elaine Hadley of the University of Chicago.
3: Many people turn to the fact that young people are obsessed with social media and they um, have been framed by the sort of demographical closed circuits where they only talk to people they like on Instagram or so on. But I actually have a slightly different view of that, which is I think this is a a group that no doubt have, have been raised and grown on the internet But that internet has opened up a version of the world to them that those of us in the older generation have not. They consume and interact in a global way that we do not. And I think we could learn something about what inclusion means in the free speech venue from the young people.
0: At the other end of the spectrum is Corinne Fisher, a New York stand-up comedian and host of the wildly popular podcast Guys We... Ah, yes... Well, in the week ahead, our current affairs show, Corinne told me why she's such a firm believer in the right to offend. She recently pulled out of a feminist comedy festival after the organisers banned performers from criticising their own bodies during their sets.
3: I don't think these people understand what they're doing. Like, I think they're trying to protect everybody and we're trying to celebrate different body types. And all that stuff is great, but you cannot force people to think that heavier women are attractive by just telling them they cannot say otherwise. Censorship doesn't change opinions. It just puts them behind closed doors, where, in my opinion, things are going to get even rougher. Because what we say behind closed doors is always a thousand times worse than what you say in public. I try to say just as equally bad stuff in public, but, you know.
0: What do you think? Go to economist.com slash open ideas to have your say the latest episode of our Money Talks podcast considered the not-so-humble bicycle. No longer content with pedal power, cyclists are going electric. Our correspondent, Sasha Nauter, spoke to us from Amsterdam, long the capital of two-wheelers.
3: It's certainly noticeable as you as you ride through the, the famous Amsterdam Vondelpark that some people are suddenly going a lot faster than others. And interestingly, you know, The initial group that was targeted with these electric bikes were the slightly older cyclists to sort of give them a little push in the wind. So you'll see these sort of 55, 65-year-olds suddenly zooming past you. Turns out they've got a little battery in the the back of their bike.
0: Bike sharing schemes are quickly cottoning on to the appeal of the e-bike too. But if two wheels aren't your style, perhaps you might consider something a bit different. A piece in our business section followed the sharing economy's expansion out into open water. Few boat owners make regular use of their
3: expensive assets. By one estimate, a French yacht slips its moorings on average for just 10 days a year. And for America's 12 million recreational boats, typical annual usage is two weeks.
0: Now, though, the tide is turning
3: in favour of the occasional sailor. Marine versions of property-sharer Airbnb or ride-sharer blah-blah car are trying to match the two. America's leader is six-year-old boat setter based near Miami. Founded by a sailing enthusiast, Jackie Baumgarten, it has raised $17 million of venture capital funding and notched up over 26,000 rentals. Of course, it's not all smooth sailing. Regulation, for one thing, varies widely. French law allows boat sharing, but in Greece, a tempting market, private owners face more difficulties. Renters usually need a boating license or must hire skippers. Demand to get on the water is seasonal. Owners tend to be middle aged and are reachable mainly by word of mouth or at boat shows. But if you fancy something a little more flash, Click and Boat has started a separate site, Click and Yacht, for chartering luxury craft for thousands of euros a day in places like the Côte d'Azur, for which there is plenty of international demand. It is one thing to stay in someone else's flat, it's another to captain a superyacht, especially when it looks
0: like you own it. And finally, from our United States section, an ode to the small-town American newspaper, down but certainly not out.
2: Jay Nolan surveys his media empire from a shed-like building outside London, Kentucky. On his desk is a stack of eight newspapers, including the Berea Citizen, established in 1899, circulation 4,511, and the Pineville Sun, Cumberland Courier, celebrating 109 years, circulation 1,646. Together, the eight papers have a combined circulation of about 25,000 and employ a dozen journalists and nine ad sales representatives.
0: Gloomy circulation reports have been predicting the extinction of such publications for years.
2: America has lost a fifth of its newspapers since 2004. Media watchers worry about news deserts, or areas without any newspapers. The mere presence of reporters at city council meetings can help keep them straight, says Al Cross, the director of the Institute for Rural Journalism at the University of Kentucky.
0: But look behind the headlines – And there's life in the local rag yet.
2: The number and variety of newspapers that continue to exist, in tiny towns with populations in four figures, at gas stations in poor rural counties, and in villages clumped near each other, give hope to even the most pessimistic observer. As Mr Nolan puts it, we have to have a free and vibrant press in America to be great in America. That is as true of little towns in the hills and hollows of Kentucky as it is in Washington, D.C.,
0: That's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. Remember, you can get more of all the stories we've sampled online at economist.com. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.